Hello and welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. My name is Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute and your host for today. Joining me is our guest, Tony Powers, once again. Tony is a friend, a fellow alumnus of Ave Maria University. Go Jirenes! At present, Tony works for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis Metropolitan Tribunal. Tony is most recently the father of Jude Powers, his four-month-old son. Tony and his bride, Christy, and Jude all reside in Indianapolis. How are you doing this morning, Tony? I'm doing great. How are you, Marcus? Very well, thank you. So uh, we decided to talk about the topic of uh, Melchizedek and his this very enigmatic figure and his role in scripture. And and eventually we're going to tie this into New Testament typology. So I want to, I want to begin by asking what intrigued you on the topic? I mean, first of all, he is very enigmatic. So why, why, my, why Melchizedek? Uh, So as some of the listeners may soon be figuring out, uh, my favorite book of the Bible is Hebrews. uh, And, we have repeatedly in the middle of the letter to the Hebrews, literally five times in three chapters, over and over again, the line, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Uh, and in my home diocese, actually, this became uh, such an important verse that the website for the Office of Vocations is priestforever.org. And their motto is, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Uh, so this is something that I've grown up hearing a lot. And it wasn't until my junior or senior year of high school that I actually started understanding what's going on there. Uh, and then once I left my diocese and went out to, well, Ave Maria, uh, realized that it's he's this random dude that no one's heard about. No one really knows a whole lot about. But uh, I think he's important, so I figured we should talk about him. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. He is pretty crucial, considering how little he appears in Scripture, too. So let's dive right into this. Uh, take us through scripture. What are we doing pertaining to Melchizedek? Okay. Uh, so I, I would love to go on about this for hours, but you know, for the sake of time, going to try to keep this to one topic and one train of thought. So again, there will be a lot of things that we can investigate and do other conversations about. I'm going to try to keep this co- concentrated. But uh, when we're talking about Melchizedek, the first place we have to start is, well, where he shows up in the story, uh, and that would be Genesis 14. Um, he gets a grand total of three verses. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Abram, because he's not Abraham yet, he's still Abram, uh, has just fought this battle um, for his nephew Lot, uh, and he comes to this random dude, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of God most high, who offers uh, bread and wine as an offering to God and gives Abram a blessing. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything he owns. And that's all we have. That's the end of it. We don't get who Melchizedek's parents are. We don't get where he, what he does. All we know is that he's a king of Salem. He's a priest of God. Uh, and he's apparently great enough to give Abram a blessing. Um, uh, That's really about it. Now, there is a really, really, really interesting uh, and very ancient tradition about him. Um, There's, it it comes from the Jewish tradition, but uh, it's possible that this is actually Shem, the son of Noah, who has done various other things in his life that we have no idea about, uh, but has wound up with a new name, Melchizedek. Um, And 
this tradition apparently persisted long enough that even Martin Luther commented on it in the 16 or in the 1500s. Um, now there's a lot of stuff we can go into with that and all that tradition and what it means and what it would mean for Abram to encounter his great, 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 great grandfather, uh, for him to give him a blessing. Yes, that was seven greats and that's the right number. I went through and counted there that many generations in between the two. Um, but now's not really the time to go through all that. If you really want to go looking, um, there are rabbinic commentaries on this that talk about it. Um, Ephraim the Syrian and Jerome talk about this. And uh, apparently Aquinas talks about it. I couldn't find it. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I didn't know where to look. But anyway, so this particular incident uh, very often gets pointed to as the origin for a very particular Christ Christian practice. Uh, we call it tithing, where you give 10% of what we own to God because that's what Abram gave to Melchizedek. He gave him 10% of everything that he had. Uh, but that's not the only time it appears in the Old Testament. Uh, so Jacob had his dream with the ladder and the angels going up and down, and he promised a tithe to God after that. Uh, and in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, three separate times, um, it gets commanded to the Israelites. So it's not like Melchizedek's the only time this happens. It's very easy to forget him, because we have it as a direct command from God elsewhere. And so for most of us, we just forget that we forget he existed at all. And Marcus, as I'm sure you can attest to a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, they ignore the dude altogether. Uh, he appears for three verses and that's all there is to him. So why focus on him? Uh, but the thing is, he didn't get forgotten in the Jewish tradition. Because uh, in Psalm 110, we get a mention of Melchizedek's priesthood. And uh, Psalm 110 is a rather important psalm. Uh, it's been called the crown of the psalms, which is a little bit of a pun. Um, because apparently it was one of the psalms that they would invoke at the coronation of a new Davidic king. Uh, but also, it has some very explicit messianic prophecy, which we know because Jesus told us about it. Uh, in Matthew twenty two forty five, he's talking to the Pharisees um, and he invokes the first line of Psalm 110 where the psalmist, uh, traditionally David, addresses this king as Lord, which would mean that whoever the psalm is about is greater than David, uh, which is something that the Pharisees had not at least in Jesus' mind, had not understood properly. Uh, so he was drawing that out for them. Now, later on in Psalm 110, I think it's verse 4 or 5, I don't remember exactly, and I don't have it in front of me at the moment, um, but the psalmist says, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. But how would that even work? Because when we think of a line of priests, we think of the Levites. And we think of Aaron's line, which is the high priests. So how does Melchizedek have a line of priests? He doesn't have parents. He doesn't have children. He's just kind of there and then he's gone. But let's, let's start by understanding what the line of priests of the Levites was. Because it's, it gets interesting. So Levi himself was obviously one of Jacob's sons. Uh, he's the fourth son. And he's not really particularly special 
in the narrative of uh, the first 12 sons of Israel. His main claim to fame up until his descendants become priests is I was fourth and also um, my grandson was Moses. Sidebar. That's a really weird thing to think about. A lot of us, when we think of Genesis and Exodus, we think there are a couple of centuries in between. No, no, this is, this is two generations. That's, that's about it. Um, but it's not until Exodus 32 and the golden calf incident that anything really particularly interesting happens to Levi's children at all. Um, so before the golden calf, we have Moses up on the mountain and he's having this conversation with God about the high priest and what the priests are supposed to wear and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to look and all that fun stuff and how to ordain them. And it's great. And then it comes down the mountain and Aaron, who is supposed to be the new high priest has made a golden calf that the Israelites are now all worshiping, which is exactly what God had told them to not do. Um, so Moses comes down the mountain. Uh, he stands in the gate of the camp and he says, who is on the Lord's side? And there's only one group of people that comes to his aid, his own family, the sons of Levi. But it's more than just Aaron's family. So after they go through the camp and slaughter all the people that were worshiping the cow, um, gets messy. Moses tells them this day you have ordained yourselves. And so while Aaron was the high priest before this particular incident, it's with this incident that the entire tribe becomes priests. So they become not just a family of priests coming from Aaron, but a tribe of priests descending from Levi. Uh, and then in number 17, this gets confirmed when uh, the heads of all of the families of the sons of Israel come together to contest who the priest should be. And so all of them put a staff in the circle and then they come in the next day and Aaron's is the one that is blooming and has figs growing on it. And so the entire tribe of Levi, which was represented by Aaron, is confirmed in the priesthood. Okay. So that's where the, the Levitical line of priests come from. But there's one other thing that binds them together. It's not just the family connection, although, yes, that is important. Uh, they offer the same sacrifice. And every Levitical priest offers sacrifices according to the command of God in Leviticus. Yes, that is where the name comes from, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, and following these instructions is critical. Uh, there's an incident in Leviticus 10 that actually shows just how important it is. Uh, two of Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, went and they brought incense before God, but they did it wrong. And it got called unholy fire before God. And in response, uh, God sent down fire from heaven and they were consumed. They offered the wrong sacrifice and it cost them their lives. Which means offering the right sacrifice it's not just something that we have to do so that, you know, we can actually do the whole sin offering thing right or so that we can appease God. No, no, it, it's a matter of life and death. Uh, that's, that's how crucial this one priesthood offering this one sacrifice is. So we get a lot of rules in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about what to sacrifice and how to sacrifice it. 
And so they get to sacrifice goats and bulls and birds and occasionally grain when you're really poor and bunch of rules, which is what makes Leviticus and Deuteronomy and a half a number so boring to read. Um, but these are the only priests that God has ordained out of the line of Abraham, which means nobody else is allowed to offer a sacrifice. Okay, so that's, that's the Levitical priesthood and all their sacrifices. Now, we have a slight thing here, because Melchizedek is not of the line of Levi, and yet he's a priest of God Most High. But Levi's family came from Abraham, who at the time was Abram. So when Abram recognized the sacrifice of Melchizedek, and he gave him a tenth of everything he owned, that's an act of Abram recognizing how much greater Melchizedek is than himself. And this is something that the author of the letter of the Hebrews actually spells out for us uh, in Hebrews 5. So because Levi was a descendant of Abram, no matter how great Levi is, he's not going to be greater than Melchizedek, who his ancestor recognizes greater than himself. And that means that no one in Levi's line, no matter how great they are, is going to be greater than their ancestor, who is still subordinate to Melchizedek. So at the end of the day, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the, Le the Levites. And that's what uh, Psalm 110 is making mention of, that this Messiah is going to have a priesthood greater than the priesthood of the Levites, which would mean it's the greatest of all priesthoods recognized by God. So just before you jump right into Hebrews and bring us to this grand culmination of this entire treatise, I, I'm, I'm tracking this with you and my heart's on fire. I'm, I'm, I'm close to bursting at this point. I just want to point out for our listeners, what, what uh, Tony is trying to tell us is the, the, Jews, the, the Jews who fell under the Levitical priesthood took sacrifice so greatly that it came to a point where when the rabbis were commenting on the Torah, they not only said it was important to do sacrifice with the right kind of sacrifice, as in just clean animals, it, it went a bit further. The priest had to do it in a very, very particular way. And the manner of the offering, the posture of the priest, the, even the direction of the wind and how high the smoke went, all of these things were so crucial that if one of them went out of the way, it was an invalid sacrifice and they feared for their lives. This, this was how stringent the Levitical priesthood was. So what Tony's trying to help us realize is that there's a greater priesthood that had already been in place before the Levitical priesthood came about. So Tony, back, back to you. I, I just wanted to point that out so people get a contextual understanding of this. No, that, that, thank you for adding that. And actually, there's, there's something that I got to add there. Um, this is actually such a big deal that in, in between the Old and New Testament, when uh, the Maccabees and their line are ruling uh, at the time, Judea, you won't, you, it gets like 15 different names in that period. Um, one of their sons, uh, I think it's John Hyrcanus, um, he offered a sacrifice wrong, because at the time he was also acting as the high priest. He offered a sacrifice that wasn't according exactly to the law, and there was a revolt. That's how important of a deal it was. The, like, when he first became king and high priest, he was rather popular, but his popularity started to decline. He did that, and it about bottomed out. It was 
That's how big of a deal it was for these people. They were really, they were willing to revolt if the priest did it wrong. So with all that in mind, we're going to jump to Hebrews seven. And this is towards the end of the discussion um, from the author to the Hebrews about what's going on. So uh, Hebrews seven eleven, he points out if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek rather than one named according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Okay, so we've got a couple of things to unpack here. So first things first, he's pointing out the Levitical priesthood is literally not capable of attaining perfection. It's a placeholder priesthood. Now this is ridiculous and insane and unbelievable to hear to a Jewish audience, which the letter of the Hebrews is addressed to. He just told them, yes, that priesthood that you've been following your whole life and your ancestors have been following for about 1,500 years, it's not good enough. What are we talking about here? But then he goes on, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek? Which would mean that Melchizedek's priesthood, somewhere in that line, there would have been someone who would have been able to attain perfection. And that's what he's getting to. That's this part of the letter is talking about the high priesthood of Christ, who is of the line of Melchizedek as the Messiah. And we'll get a little bit deeper into that in a second. Um, and he mentions there is a change in the priesthood. And yes, fairly obviously. Um, so Hebrews talks very explicitly about Jesus as our high priest. It also comes up in Revelation. Jesus as our high priest. The lamb is our high priest a whole bunch of symbolic imagery there. Jesus isn't a Levite. He's very explicitly a Jew of the line of Judah. Uh, very famously, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, or David's line is of the tribe of Judah. So if he is the uh, stump of the, or the shoot of the stump of Jesse's line, then He's from the tribe of Judah. It's very explicit. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He is not a Levitical priest. That means we have a change of priesthood. And when we have a change of priesthood, we have a change of law going with it. So we have a new priest. And we have a new law, which means we have a new sacrifice. Now, when I was talking about the Levitical priests, I was talking about how important it is, and Marcus was really emphasizing how important it is that they'll offer the same sacrifice. So, okay. We have this really, really interesting connection here. Melchizedek's sacrifice is bread and wine. He very explicitly offers bread and wine to God Most High. Jesus offers something different. See, last week, or yeah, it was last week, when Marcus and I were talking, we were talking about what Jesus sacrificed, which was himself, his own body and blood. So it would seem that we have two people that are claiming to be of the same order, but they're not really of the same order. It's really more of a symbolic kind of deal. You know, okay, it's great. Melchizedek offers bread and wine. It's 
prefiguring Jesus. It's kind of laying the groundwork. You know, the bread symbolizes his body. The wine symbolizes his blood. That's really cool. But no, that would mean they're not of the same order. And this is a culture that understands how important it is for priests of the same order to offer the same sacrifice. So, in order for them to make the same sacrifice, in order for them to be of the same order, there's something really interesting we have to understand. So we're going to turn to Luke 22, 19. Okay, so this is in the middle of the Last Supper. Jesus is having the Passover meal with them. And Luke tells us, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the chalice after supper, saying, This chalice, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus does offer bread and wine. But the bread and wine are now his body and blood. And that's what the new covenant is. So it's not just... It's not just offering bread and wine in some sort of symbolic connection. No, no. In order for Jesus to be a priest of the line of Melchizedek, the offering has to be bread and wine. But Jesus' offering is himself. And the only way for us to put these two together is for the bread and wine to be the body and blood of Christ. Which is unbelievably mind-blowing once you finally wrap your head around what's going on here because all of a sudden yes we have john 6 and the bread of life discourse and that's great and we have the passover symbolism and all of that typology and that's great but what we have here is a description of his priesthood which is something we experience every time we go to mass every time we go to a church every time we see a priest on the street because our priests are ordained into Christ's priesthood. And it's really, really interesting seeing that the line of Melchizedek, yes, it ends with Jesus, who has in his divinity no father or mother, just like Melchizedek. But in his humanity, he offers in time this sacrifice that, again, ties into his divinity. And that's a whole other mystery for a whole other time. And it's. You'll never wrap your mind around that, I guarantee you. But our priests, when they make that sacrifice, the church teaches that it's not the priest himself making the sacrifice. It's the priest acting in the person of Christ. Because Jesus is our high priest. And as our high priest, he is of this line of priests that is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's of the line of priests that is great enough for us to achieve perfection. This sacrifice that Jesus makes is great enough for us to achieve perfection. And so last time when we were talking about the issues with penal substitution and the idea that um, God's not angry so we don't have to become perfect, we can continue as we are. No, the entire point is that the priesthood of Jesus is so great. This sacrifice is so great that we can become perfected through it. It's not just something the church made up. It's not something that smart people sat around and thought about and kind of put together. No, this is something that scripture tells us. It shows us this. And it's something that we'll never completely understand because of the mystery that is God. But it's something that we can begin to live and begin to see 
this sacrifice, the Eucharist that Jesus offers for us as the way for our, for us to reach perfection. It's only through him and it's only through this sacrifice and it's only through his priesthood that this is at all possible. Yep. I just want to uh, interject here and, and add on just a little more to that. So uh, again, like, like I'm, I'm telling you, my, my heart's, but this is such a pet project for me in terms of scripture research, precisely because typology was one of those babies that were thrown out with the Reformation bathwater. Bath and, and we just didn't get this richness as Pentecostals. So we, we think about this, there were five different kinds of Jewish sacrifices. And we want to focus on two. There were the sin offerings, which you've been telling us about, the, the animal blood offerings. And then there were also the Thanksgiving offerings. And the Thanksgiving offerings were, guess what? Bread and wine. And what you're telling us right now is that in Jesus, the Thanksgiving offering has taken on the substance of the sin offering of the body and blood of Christ. That's why our sacrifice of the mass is at once a sin offering for our atonement and a Thanksgiving offering. In, in Hebrew, we have the word toda, which in Greek is translated to a word that we use fairly often, eucharisti. So, I mean, and it's so, it's so opportune that we're doing this discussion today because guess what we're going to encounter in the next three days? Yeah, well, tomorrow is the celebration of what we just talked about when Jesus did this for the first time, when he showed us very explicitly, yes, I am the priest of the order of Melchizedek. I am the priest forever. And this is the sacrifice that is sufficient for perfection. You know, th th this is truly, truly mind-boggling. Uh, okay, so 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 let let's backtrack a little more. Let, let's 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 unpack one more element. So you were telling us about how God founded this original kind of priesthood, and there was a kind of model to that priesthood. It was kind of father-son priesthood because he he ordained humanity as particular sons, and the fathers conferred this priesthood on the firstborn sons. You mentioned the golden calf. We have a bit of time here. Walk us through why that was so egregious that there had to be an institution of a new law and a new priesthood. So a huge part of what the problem was with the golden calf was specifically Aaron as, okay, he, he hadn't been told he was going to be the high priest yet, although he was Moses' spokesman. Aaron was the oldest son of his family. So of his immediate family, Aaron would have been the one to whom the priesthood of the family passed on to. And in, in this incident of uh, mass idolatry, here, let me, let me actually pull out Exodus 32 so I can use the words that uh, the author uses. Um, but in this, in this incident of mass idolatry, we see that the people can't be trusted with it. And when the people come together, it's the whole people who are gathering together and saying to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us because we don't know who this is that's going before Moses. Now, remember, we're only two generations removed from like Levi is Aaron's grandfather. This is, this isn't really a reach back in the imagination for them. This is something that they should have known. This should have been passed on to them. So when God appears in the burning bush and tells Moses, uh, I am the God of your ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
uh, I'm the god of your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, and your great-great-great-grandfather, and also should be the god of your grandfather and your father, too, but apparently you don't know me. And we can give Moses a little bit of a pass, you know, being raised in the palace and all that fun stuff. Um, but the fact that so closely removed from Israel and his sons, they've already forgotten God. They already don't know God enough that they need another God in front of them has shown that the people cannot be trusted to pass on the priesthood through their families. They they've shown that if you will, if you leave us alone for all of, you know, 15 minutes, we're going to go off and do our own thing. Now, to be fair, it had, it had been about a month that Moses was out on the mountain and it was, I'll give them that. But this is right after they were delivered from Egypt. This is a month before God is parting the Red Sea and letting them walk through on dry land and then closing it down over Pharaoh and his army. At this point, there is a certain priesthood that should still be being passed down through the families. And it's not. And that's part of what makes this such an important change and such a radical change. And if you'll permit me to go back a little bit, the tradition with Shem being Melchizedek, that's what makes that so intriguing because Shem is the oldest son of Noah. So Shem would have received this priesthood as Noah's oldest son and been able to exercise it properly. And Abram being from Ur of the Chaldeans, and for him, this is a very strange, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's not a radically unknown God, but it's not familiar in the same way that, you know, Shem and Noah knew God. So the incident with Melchizedek being greater than Abraham, and in a certain sense, there may be, if, again, this is still just a small t tradition, this isn't definitive by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really interesting thing to think about it if it is. Um, it's a recognition by Abraham that the greater priesthood is the one that's passed down from father to son at that time. And in the Exodus, just a few generations later, that priesthood is taken away from them. So it's not just that they neglected to pass it on and God said, you know what, forget it. No, no. God actively took that away from them and made the Levites their priests. And this is something that I'm working on another thing. We can talk about it at a later date, but there are a couple incidents in Judges, for example, uh, where the priesthood of the Levites is so important that the head of a fe- the the head of a household sees a Levite passing through town and goes to him and says, "You will you be a father and a priest to me and my family?" They give up their own priesthood to their family because the Levites are God's priests. So when we have Christ coming and establishing a new priesthood, it's not. It's not just fulfilling the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's also restoring the priesthood prior to the Levites, where a father is the priest of his family and his son becomes the successor and so on and so forth. 
and we actually get a little bit of this uh, in the church's understanding of the domestic church, where the father is the priest of his family. And so it's on the father that the responsibility for the faith falls. Um, and yes, this gets very controversial very quickly because a lot of people don't like being told you should listen to your husbands. Um, and a lot of kids don't like being told you should listen to your parents. Um, but it's not a domineering priesthood because it's a priesthood modeled after Christ. And Christ as the high priest is also the sacrifice himself. And we see the sacrifice through the bread and wine of the Eucharist. But at the end of the day, the sacrifice is Christ. It's because the bread and wine become Christ that the Eucharist has value. If it just stayed bread and wine, I, it would be a very interesting, very bizarre dinner that we all gathered for. But it would be nothing more than a memorial dinner. And that's something that we can see with a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. What, what it turns to, once you lose that connection to Christ, it, you wind up with churches where once a month maybe you might do the bread and wine thing. Or once a year or around Easter time we do the bread and wine thing. Or, you know, it, it falls out of the importance. But for us, with Christ as our high priest, with Christ restoring this priesthood, of the patriarchs restoring the priesthood of the family, this sacrifice that he makes takes on that much more importance because he is our high priest. And so we sacrifice the way that he sacrifices, which is himself in its entirety. Now that's a terrifying thought. You're, you're talking to a fellow husband and, potentially future father i'm I'm listening to this going yeah that that puts a lot into perspective yeah yeah okay yeah. so and what sorry sorry go on go on please <laughs> no, um just my day job uh i i work a lot with marriage cases and it it takes about 30 seconds in that office you look at a single case and you realize oh this is the power that the priest of a family has. It's dramatic. Yeah, dramatic and saddening at the same time. I, I speak with so much sorrow for our generation, Tony, because left and right, we're seeing so many marriages fall apart because of such a lack of understanding of this reality. Whether you like it or not, husbands, fathers, you're, you're the high priests of your families. You don't have an option in this. Love, love your brides and love your families as Christ loved the church. How? Well, he, he gave his body and blood for them. Okay, so let, let's backtrack to what you said earlier. So you're telling us how in, in the model of the domestic family, God has reclaimed this model of the father-son priesthood. But we also see a semblance of that in the ministerial priesthood. Would you just share a little bit on, on, on that for us, please? Uh, so... The way that we see it very obviously in the ministerial priesthood, um, we call them father. It's, and it's something that as Catholics, it very quickly just becomes a, re a reflex. Oh, I see the caller, father. That's, and then you don't think about it. We just call priest father. That's what we do, even though Jesus said, call no man father. I, okay, that's a whole other conversation. 
then you run into the very awkward question of then what do I call the man who sired me? Uh, the answer there is father. Maybe Jesus had something else on his mind. Conversation for another time. Um, but the entire point of the priest is that he's a father to his people. He's not a father in the literal sense, but a spiritual father. Uh, and in one sense, we maintain the discipline of celibacy in the West here just for practical purposes because it gets really expensive to pay a priest enough to be able to support a family on. Um, but there's more to it because it's a constant reminder that we call the priest father not because he, we are his children in a literal sense, but because he is our priest we're his spiritual children and he is the one acting in the person of Christ to offer the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And yes, we join with him in the sacrifice of the mass, but the priest is the one who's actually offering the sacrifice in the person of Christ. Um, and this is actually the structure of the entire hierarchy of the church because the priest is in a certain sense, the extended arm of the bishop, who is the father of the whole diocese. And the bishop, in turn, comes to a diocese because the world is too big for the pope to act as father to all of us at once. And that's why we call the pope Holy Father. That's where the term pope comes from. It's, it's from Papa, the Latin word for, or not Latin, the Italian word for father. Because he is spiritually our Holy Father. He's, yes, the vicar of Christ. Yes, he is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever he looses on earth is loosed in heaven. Yes, he does have that authority. But in another sense, he is our father, and we are his children. And it, it's very easy for us to misunderstand how this all works, and it's very easy for this to very quickly turn into a kind of power dynamic. and that's and it quickly turns into what we call clericalism. But the obedience that the church commands us to, to our spiritual fathers, is that of a child to his parents. Because as our fathers, the priests, the bishops, the pope, they're the ones who are supposed to be offering the sacrifice on our behalf. They're supposed to be working for the sanctification of their entire family, because that's the point of parenthood. Yes, it's great um, for parents to go out and be able to take their kids to Disneyland and go on great vacations and send their kids to college. Those, are, those aren't bad things. Those are good things for parents to do. But the most important task of a parent is to get their children to heaven. And the most important task of a spouse is to get their spouse to heaven. And the father, as the priest of the family, is the one that falls back on. So at the end of the day, it's the father who will be answering in a special way for his family's salvation. Which is a terrifying amount of responsibility. And I can see your eyes widening as I'm saying this. It's a terrifying amount of responsibility. But praise the Lord, we're not in this alone. Because we have for us a high priest who has gone before us, we have a high priest who sits in heaven 
already enthroned, having offered himself as our sacrifice for our perfection. We just have to make sure that we're actually paying attention to those words and living that out. <clears throat> okay, I don't want to detract from this. This, this, is, this is all very exhorting, it's, but it is terrifying. There's no real way around it. Whenever I take a look at the way the world lives right now, and I don't know if you've heard this battle cry, but I have heard it numerous times. Only God can judge me. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that, that should terrify us. That should outright terrify us. And, and what you're telling us is, husbands and fathers, we're going to be judged all the more for the way we live out our offices. So just a word of exhortation for those of you who are married, who have children, or discerning marriage, especially you men, please don't take the sacrament for granted. As a fellow brother in this ministry, do not take the sacrament and calling for granted. Okay, so I just want to backtrack into some typological considerations. Let's break down the name Melchizedek, King of Salem. How does that even point to Christ, and what does that say about us and our priesthood? You know, funny you mentioned that. Uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews goes through and does that for us. That's the great thing about the Bible. The more you read, the more you realize you don't actually have to do this yourself. It's already done for you. I know. <laughs> you know, ever since I became Catholic, I've been telling people it's so great. I don't have to invent anything. I have not come up with an original thought in 10 years, and it's so great. <laughs> And the best part is, if it's not explicitly in the Bible, then there's some church father who did it for us 1,500 years ago, and it's fine. All right, let me see if I can find it. It's Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 is where all the Melchizedek stuff is. And at one point, the author to the Hebrews very explicitly says, uh, King of Salem means king of peace. Now we hear Jesus with the title, Prince of Peace. That awkward pause was me giving uh, Marcus a face that basically this should be showing itself to us. Oh, oh they'll see it. They'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <clears throat> I can't find what I'm looking for. Well, what I'm looking for, um, which is somewhere in here, I know it is because I read it yesterday, um, but Melchizedek, ah, here we go, Hebrews 7, 2, he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is King of Peace, that's what I've been looking for. Um, so, he's the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. Does that remind us of anyone else that we know in history? You know, it rings a faint bell. <laughs> Let's make it explicit. Uh, it's Jesus. The Prince of Peace and King of Righteousness is an interesting title. It doesn't often get referred to him, but it fits. Uh, a very easy way to understand this. We talked last time about 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, that we may be made the righteousness of God. How are we made the righteousness of God? By the offering of the Prince of Peace, which would make him the King of Righteousness. Okay, all fantastic stuff, still very scary. Because from what you're telling us, each of us is called to be the Melchizedeks of our own families, as, as men, as fathers, as husbands. Break that down for us. 
Well, okay. So we talked a little bit about what it means to be the priest of your family. Okay. There's a lot going on there. Um, but Melchizedek, king of Salem, that doesn't just mean that you're the priest of your family. It means you're also an example to your family in righteousness and peace. And as men, that gets very difficult very easily because testosterone is naturally quite aggressive, which makes it all that much more of a sacrifice for us to put ourselves second and accept that our rule in our family is to be an example in righteousness and to keep the family in peace. And that doesn't mean keeping the family in peace by sweeping all the conflict under the rug or sending people to separate rooms so they don't fight. No, no. No, we're talking true peace. The peace that is only found in the Prince of Peace, namely Jesus. So it's not just that we're offering the sacrifice on behalf of our families. It's not just that we're the ones that are most to answer for how our families end up. It's more. Because it's not just that we have to lead them in the way that they're to go. It's that we have to be that example. And I want to include a word here for the female listeners. You have a choice. Don't forget, you have a choice. You get to choose who, you're, who the priest of your family is going to be. Please make good choices. You know, I, I jumped on this podcast <clears throat> today thinking that we were going to do a lot of scripture. And, and, and you know me well enough to know my, my heart's just immersed in scripture. It's also been quite the slap in the face uh, in terms of a wake-up call. I, I didn't expect it to take this path, but you know, this is both timely and crucial, especially in a day and age where this inherent dignity of man and manhood and the masculine genius has been all but desecrated in the name of this third wave feminism that seeks to destroy anything male and label it as toxic masculinity. Uh, I, I echo you, young, young ladies, sisters out there, the, you have choices and you have choices of discernment. And you, Tony, you work in the tribunal. You, you see these things firsthand, but only after they've played out to their natural conclusions. So uh, I, I want to I backtrack from that exhortation into taking a look at the Easter Triduum. Just let, let's end on a very glorious note. We're going to enter into darkness so that we can come out in the light. Uh, walk us through what everything we've talked about means as individual Catholics going through the Easter Triduum, and then say a word in exhortation for us as fathers and families. Okay. Uh, so <clears throat> the Triduum is, first off, absolutely my favorite time of year. Um, I absolutely love the very clearly symbolic nature of all of the liturgies that happen between uh, the evening of Holy Thursday through to the Easter Vigil and even through the Octave of Easter. Uh, but the fact that we're doing this at this time of year is actually really perfect and something that I hadn't realized until you pointed it out for me um, because we're in a really weird situation where we can't go to the liturgies. I mean, okay, a lot of churches are streaming them online, which is fantastic. Um, and a way for us to 
have at least some sort of participation in them, even if we can't physically be present. Uh, but it makes it that much better of an opportunity for us to dig into this with our families uh, and to understand what's going on. And so we have, uh, we have Jesus on Sunday. He entered into Jerusalem in the manner that Solomon did when he was made king, which is a whole discussion for another time. Uh, really interesting discussion, but a whole discussion for another time. So we have Jesus making this very, very clear claim to be the, the Davidic king that was promised. And we have the entire week leading up to his passion where we see him making prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we see him cleaning the temple of the money changers and uh, doing all that fun stuff, which is where the priests and the Pharisees begin to plot against him. Turns out when you take away people's source of income, they get angry. Um, yeah, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> I know, shocking concept. And we see him going on and on and on until we get to this Passover celebration. And he begins it with, I have long desired to eat this meal with you because he knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows what he's doing. This is all very deliberate and intentional. And so when Jesus takes that bread and he breaks it for them and he passes it around, it's, yes, it's a part of the Passover meal, but it's Jesus invoking the sacrifice that's about to come. This is my body, which will be given up for you. And he takes the cup of wine and he passes it around and says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, conversation for another time. There's a lot of very interesting things to be said about the fact that the average Jew at the time you go out of the city, you go up the hill, and you look at the cross. You don't see a sacrifice. There's no priest. There's no altar. There's no temple. You're outside the city of Jerusalem. You can't have a sacrifice outside Jerusalem. You just have the dude getting hung on a cross, which happens periodically, and it's depressing, and we don't like it, but it happens. Um, and it's the connection to that Passover meal that helps us understand what that sacrifice is because it's the offering of Melchizedek. He connects himself to the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek. And this is the perfect time for us to begin to understand that as Jesus is leaving us in death, he's leaving behind the offering of Melchizedek. And yes, he'll be back on Sunday. In theory, uh, he, he might, you know, be back in the second coming on Saturday. That's a whole other thing. Um, but he'll be back on Sunday and you know, he'll be, he's back and he walks among us. But after his resurrection, we see in the journey to Emmaus and I think it's Luke 24. Um, it's in the breaking of the bread. It's in the sacrifice of Melchizedek that he's recognized. And so when Jesus institutes the Eucharist, He's been Jesus this whole time. He's been the Messiah this whole time. He's been God this whole time. But he shows that to us in a new light. And he shows us the sacrifice that is sufficient for our perfection. And so this year, especially because we can't be in the Holy Thursday liturgy and because we aren't going to be able to be in the Easter Vigil liturgy, it's the perfect opportunity for families to come together 
and go through the Last Supper and understand that this is the sacrifice that's sufficient for our perfection. And with it being missing from our lives right now, that'll make it all the sweeter when we finally get it back. So I guess that's a combination of uh, both of what you were asking for, uh, an exhortation and a little bit of a breakdown. <laughs> no, that, that was perfect. That was absolutely perfect. And I love the way you rounded it up because you're right. I can't physically get ready and go to the liturgy. So what am I going to do? This is the best thing I can do. Immerse myself in the mysteries now and participate as best I can and lead my family to do the same thing. I just want to uh, throw this in as a kind of confession, as a seeking of prayer, but at the same time, just as an exhortation for everyone else as well. I take a look at our marriage right now. And if there ever exists a failing in our spiritual growth, the, the buck has to stop with me. The buck has to stop. I, I can't pass the buck to my bride. The buck has to stop with me. And, and I want to thank you for that wake-up call. It's something that people like you and I meditate on very, uh, very often, but we tend to forget. And uh, there's some people out there who don't even know this. And, and now we're saying, no, this has always been God's plan for the family. Men, we are to rise up to become fathers and husbands as Christ is father and husband of the church. So uh, I want to thank you very much for your time. Do you have any closing considerations you'd like to offer before we end this podcast? Uh, one last closing consideration. So that, that thing that we keep quoting, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, uh, comes from Ephesians 5. It's uh, 525. And 5. Yeah. Verse 526 tells us exactly what the point is that he might sanctify her. That's what all this is pointing to. Okay, yes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you. Yes, sacrifice of yourself. Do the dishes if you don't want to. Wake up with the crying baby in the middle of the night, even though it's really, really difficult. And you sleep very deeply, and sometimes your snores are louder than his cry. That's the story of my life right now. Um, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is the sanctification of your family. That's what all this is pointing to. And that's only possible through the sacrifice of Christ, which is sufficient for perfection. Once again, I want to thank you, Tony, for putting all of this in perspective. And that, that puts a very neat little bow on the entire conversation. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope this provides us a, a really good consolation, but also an exhortation, this, this battle cry to charge into this, this mystery of life and, and to do so by going through the mysteries of the Triduum. So thank you very much for, for being on this podcast, Tony. Thank you very much, you listeners, for joining us on today's episode. We hope to have you join us for future episodes. Uh, once again, I'm Marcus Peter. I've been your host for today. I'm the president of the St. Peter Institute. And I've been talking with our guest, Tony, uh, a friend, fellow alumnus of Ave Maria University. And he works for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, Indianapolis Metropolitan Tribunal. Tony is, as you've heard from all of his wisdom today, most recently the father of a four-month-old Jude, Jude Powers, and his, Tony and his bride and his son all reside in Indianapolis. So if you'd like to get in touch with Tony, the link will be in the description. Just get in touch with him via a form that you fill up on the St. Peter Institute website. Until next time, God bless you and keep you.